This is Dirt Cheap, a Neon Hum podcast. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. This is the podcast where we read Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Uh, We are on chapter three. Amanda, do you remember where we last left off in this book? Oh, man. Well, uh, yeah, Phil uh, slapped his estranged wife in the face. Sure did. It seemed like pretty hard. Yeah. In front of her her boy servant. In front of her boy man <laughs> servant guy who only speaks Sanskrit. It was like a an interesting dinner date. Yeah. <laughs> quote, unquote, date. And so now uh, he's leaving the restaurant, and this is chapter three of Murder in the Glass Room. Willie was waiting for me under the canopy. He didn't even let the door close behind me. He rushed up with his mouth in motion. Look, Phil, he said, you'll never see me again. It'll be like we never even became acquainted. Honest to God, I'll disappear out of your sight now forevermore. As far as you're concerned, it'll be like I was never born. One thousand dollars. That's all it'll cost you. Just a lousy one thousand. I thought, Christ, not now, not again. God almighty, he whimpered. Do you want me to get down on my knees in front of you? Do you want me to crawl? Do I have to beg just for a lousy grand? By the way, I do really like him repeatedly saying a lousy $1,000. I mean, even by today's standards, $1,000 is still a lot of money. It's not like 20 bucks, you know? It's it's a lot of money. This feels like it, it's it's like gambler talk. Like, <laughs> oh, measly grand, you know? Like, once you're, like, gambling into such massive debts, like, that one grand is seen as, like, oh, just, you know, let me, hold, let me hold it for a week. By the way, how did Willie find him? Right. Like, it's one thing for Willie to find Phil at his apartment where he does his betting, but it's another thing to, like, stalk him at a restaurant. That's pretty uh, clever of Willie, stalkery of Willie, sad of Willie. I mean, depressing of Willie, weird of Willie. <laughs> it's a lot of things. It takes some dedication to stalk someone in the 40s. I mean, yeah. you know. I didn't answer. I just walked past him. Lousy bastard. Lousy, lousy bastard. Willie shrieked after me. I had no idea where I was going. My head buzzed. The sidewalks were empty. Nobody in Southern California ever walks. There was no use pretending to myself that I had a problem to figure out. I knew as well as I knew I was alive that I was going to give Edna the full 50 grand. Why did he agree to give the full 50 grand to begin with? Like, it doesn't make sense. Their agreement wasn't, I will give you everything I have in the world. The agreement was, I'm going to give you a certain amount of money. And then Edna was like, oh, you made more money. So I want all of that money. And he was like, yeah, I guess I'm going to do that. What choice do I have? Uh, yeah, he uh, he's a fool. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think I think the book is trying to uh, sort of imply that this is sentimental. Yes. That like, oh, 
you know, this guy's all about the money normally, but when it comes to Edna, right. he can't seem to come up. But he is financially abusing her <laughs> and clearly has been since they started their relationship. Uh, well, and also, but also keep slapping her. But yes, but oh, well, yes, all of that. Yes. But also he's bad at negotiating his way out of the bookie business to begin with, with his partner, Jerry. So it, it doesn't, I'm not seeing like, that he is like a great negotiator outside of Edna. It just seems like he's a bad negotiator in general. <laughs> and that left me exactly skunked. A small bank balance and the convertible raw that remained. Back where I started from, that phrase kept running through me. All these past 15 years, and now nothing. Rosa had always said that what I knew about women, you could put in a mosquito's eye. I certainly knew how to pick them. By the way, this is like the eighth time he's mentioned Rosa, but has not said who Rosa is. Um, it's right. Just, just who like is Ro Rosa again? We do not know. There was a fire in one of the empty lots I passed, probably someone burning the weeds out as summer came on. The acrid odor disturbed me in a way very few people in the world could know. It carried me back to the time when I was a kid, and in the many times I'd eaten sour-smelling mulligan and flat-hot coffee out of tin cans heated over the same kind of fires. It reminded me of everything I wanted to forget, everything I had forgotten until this night. The dirty scrounging around in the city streets with no place to go, no place to sleep, no way to eat except by swiping things from the open markets, the crowded smell of the slums, and the stink rising from the gutter, always, everywhere. I'd never known my mother, and by the time I was old enough to notice that the other kids had what they called mothers, and asked my old man why I didn't have one of my own, he'd got up without a word and walked out of the house. That time he hadn't shown up for a week, and a neighbor had fed me until he returned. I never even figured out until a long time later what his job had been, that of itinerant evangelist, living from hand to mouth until he struck Los Angeles about the time I was six years old. Once he hit L.A., the religious crackpot's paradise, he stayed put, more or less. He remained there until one of his periodic disappearances turned out to be permanent. I was about 11 at the time, and never heard a word about him again. L.A., the religious crackpot's paradise. I, We're, we live in L.A. We we do. Like, nowadays, in 2020, yeah. L.A. is kind of seen as a soulless, beliefless kind of place. Right. But Phil is kind of, I think, pointing out, like, a truth, which is, like, a lot of the people, a lot of the white folks who moved to Southern California from, like, the late 1900s were a lot of people trying to start big churches and stuff. Right. Uh, and but it was a lot of evangelical, like, white flight that came here. But I'm not really sure in 1945, L.A. can be seen as a, as a crackpot's paradise. So, like, I, now I want all the research. I do. I am curious about it. The um, What I will say is that in 2020, I think we are like the crackpot spiritualist paradise, right? It's like... Yeah, it's it's permutated into like the wellness industry. Right, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Like, that's what it made me think of, like wellness. I'm sure it's exactly what you're saying. It's like evangelism must have been like super popular in LA in the mid-40s. I believe that. But yeah, it has sort of evolved into 
you know, the crystal smoothies. I'm pretty sure there is a place that, like, has, like, crystal dust. Like, they, you could put, like, pink quartz dust in it. Just ingest it. Yeah, absolutely. I, they've got it all. You can ingest gold. Why not crystal? Why not powdered crystal? Oh, yeah. I think most people should be mainlining pure minerals and just <laughs> see what happens. You'll achieve a higher consciousness uh, that no one on Earth has ever achieved before. <laughs> The neighbors had taken care of me for a while, but they weren't able or willing to keep it up after months went by and still no word from the old man. I drifted onto the gutter. Man, imagine just being like, yeah, kid, your dad's not coming back. Get out of my house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, especially if you were like neighbors, like you knew each other. Like I'm imagining like in the 40s, like people knew their neighbors like much better uh, at least that's what I'm told about Probably. old-timey times. Everybody was like, my neighbors. Oh, yeah, you have you my neighbors? These are my neighbors, my good neighbors. So imagine just being like a neighbor, being like, yeah, yeah, you got to go, kid. <laughs> Your dad's not coming back. Yeah, it's, it's so, like, he, the way he sort of casually, like, it, you can almost feel the muttering in <laughs> the way it's written of just, like, yeah, like it's it, it's just it's just the way it is, right? Like I I find it fascinating that he has women issues. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, he's another he's another character who grew up without a mother. Yep. Like this is pretty common. What made me turn out the way I did was accidental. The chance meeting long ago with Rosa, the one person who knew how I'd been kicked around because she'd been treated the same way herself. I was 15 at the time, but I remembered it as if it had been yesterday. I'd been wandering around the city, hiding, eating only what I could mooch. One evening at dusk, I found myself outside the back door of a building that didn't want to leave most wonderful smells in the world drifted out through the windows. And then I suddenly went wild and dashed in and found myself among the stoves and tables of a Spanish restaurant's kitchen. I grabbed the handle of the first big pot I saw on the stove and started running back to the street door with it. But the excitement, the hunger, the dizziness were too much. I passed out before I reached the door. When I came to, I was in a clean white bed and there was a dame big and calm and warm looking sitting next to me fuck <laughs> yeah big and calm and warm looking in a book full of vague descriptions of human beings this one i think takes the cake it's the most <laughs> big and calm and warm looking it tells me so little about what this person looks like i can tell you what i <laughs> gleaned from that immediately. Yes. Which is a uh, mammy. Every way that he talks of Rosa is like of that of a mammy. Someone who is taking care and basically like burping them and changing their diapers basically right. into adulthood and uh, are completely thankless because it's assumed that it's their nature. Yeah. That I mean, he they, basically that they exist to serve. As much as he fondly speaks of Rosa, he also seems to take her for granted. Let's see what else he says about Rosa. Yeah, let's, let's pour else. one out for Rosa. Let's pour one out for yeah, Rosa. Yeah, I think Rosa's already, the unsung we, hero of this book, we've, like, we've obviously. Barely, we've barely met her, and already we feel very empathetic towards her. 
I remembered her face from the restaurant kitchen. I'd caught just one glimpse of her there, among the pots, standing over one and holding a big ladle to her lips. She was, I found out from the days when she nursed me back to normalcy, the chief cook in the restaurant I had tried to raid. And she hadn't been in the United States more than a few years at a time. She gave up her own bed to me all the time I was sick, and she slept on the sofa out in the living room. That was Rosa. From the very beginning, she understood everything I wanted to say, even when I wouldn't say anything, when I couldn't say anything, because I didn't know how to say it. And then, that month in the sun, the vacation she had insisted on. The first time in my life I'd ever known the meaning of the word vacation. She'd taken me away for a month to a little spot not far from LA, a place that was like a paradise to me, near a tiny village with the most appropriate name in the world, Eden, California. I mean, first of all, what a mitzvah that uh, Rosa did to take Phil in. Yeah, it's like um, an incredible act of charity. Incredible act of charity. But on top of that, takes him on vacation? Yeah, what's going on there? That's Is interesting. There, yeah, this this adds a wrinkle. Like I'm, Is there I'm, like a kid painter vibe happening here? There might like, be a kid painter vibe happening. Or like maybe, were, do you think they were involved? We don't know. Um, this is such a weird relationship. It is a very strange relationship. It is interesting to take somebody you just met on vacation for a month. But, you know, it could just be that she's just like, yeah, this kid needs nature. I don't know. I guess. I mean, listen, uh, that that is very restorative. Yeah. Uh, like, she was right. But also, yeah, why? <laughs> was she just going to go there anyway and just felt like, well, I can't trust him alone in my house? You know, that maybe that's it. Because that's, that's the funniest <laughs> thing. I better just take him to Eden. All right, we're all going to go to Eden together. <laughs> that's where we spent that month out in the sun. The first time in my life that I ever knew anything like that, where things made sense. The first time in my life I'd ever slept in a room that had more than one small, dirty window. With Rosa there all the time, explaining things to me, telling me everything would be all right, being there when I woke up at night in the middle of a nightmare. And now I was back where I started from, except that I was a lot older, and I didn't know whether I could fight my way up through the jungle again. I hadn't noticed where I was walking, but I saw now that I had cut west and was approaching the boulevard. The streets were deserted, but I thought I heard footsteps somewhere behind me. I turned and caught a glimpse of a small man, silhouetted by the glare of a street lamp. It was Willie again, following me. I became suddenly, unaccountably furious at him. I veered sharply and cut back towards him, but he dodged out of the circle of light and ran towards the corner. I was afraid I'd lose him in the darkness, so I began to run too. By the time I'd reached the corner, he was gone. I waited a few minutes, listening for footsteps, but the street was quiet. He might have ducked into one of a hundred backyards. I was still so caught up in my thoughts that I wasn't very clear about why I had chased Willie. <laughs> All I knew was that he bothered me, that I hated the feeling that he was shadowing me. It was irrational, I knew. It was like being run over by a truck and then regaining consciousness and getting suddenly furious because a mosquito was biting you. 
I'm sorry. It's just really funny. He's just like blinded by rage constantly. I, I love I love this. <laughs> he like hulked out basically. Yeah, he, he hulked out. Hulk. He blacked out and does not remember why he's suddenly sprinting towards him. <laughs> God damn me, Willie. I hate you so much. I suddenly realized that I had been walking for a long time and that I was tired. I looked at my watch. It said 12.15. I'd been walking for two hours. Yeah, that's a that's a long walk. <laughs> All right, Phil, getting those steps in. Get those steps in. Be right back. We're back. I'd left my car parked at Riley's. There was no chance of picking up a cab in the neighborhood, so I started to retrace my steps, walking double time now. Riley's was closed when I got there just before two. Only a few lights shone from the kitchen windows at the back. I went around to the parking lot. There it was, the only car left. The keys were there, hanging from the ignition lock. Somebody, maybe George, had thrown my hat down on the seat. I turned the key and started her. Driving aimlessly along the streets, I made up my mind. I'd go to Edna's house and tell her I'd pay off. Yes, the whole 50 grand. I could have waited until the next morning and called her on the phone, but now that I'd reached a decision, I was anxious to get it all over with. I'm like that. When I die, I want it to come quick. The lights were on all over the house. I was glad I was no longer paying the electric bills. I climbed the steps and was about to press against the button when I noticed the door was open. Funny, I thought, but not inconsistent. I'd found it that way many times before when I'd lived there myself. I pushed against it and entered. Then I went over to the stairway and shouted, Edna, Edna, Edna. There was no answer. She was probably still out with the blonde boy. I entered the living room and found myself a bottle of black and white and mixed myself the usual. I sat back in a big, comfortable leather armchair. I remember the day I spotted it in a store window on Beverly Drive and bought it on first sight. Of course, the leather armchair brings back memories of furniture shopping. We love you, Phil. It's the best trait he has. <laughs> yeah, it's his best trait. Then I adjusted the lamp over my shoulder for reading and sat back. I ran my eyes over the titles of a pile of books on the end table next to the chair, but there was nothing interesting. I finally chose an old issue of Reader's Scope and skipped from page to page. When I looked at my watch again, it was just a minute short of three o'clock. I was getting tired of waiting, and she might even stay out all night. Besides, the compulsion to get the thing settled immediately had evaporated. I decided to leave her a note. Amazing. He went out to Edna's to give her the $50,000. She wasn't there, and he started reading a magazine and then was like, and you know what? I'm going to hold on to the $50,000. I'm tired of waiting. And I remembered she kept her writing on the desk in the glass room. The glass room. Think about the glass room. I heard about the glass room. Remember what you've heard about the glass room. That may come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> I threw the magazine down, drained the last swallow of my drink, and headed towards it. I moved quickly to the door and pushed it wide open. It was very dark inside, but I knew my way around by heart. And so I headed 
unerringly for the writing desk and switched on the small, opaque-shaded table lamp. The light reached only a limited area around the desk, leaving the rest of the room in darkness. Picking up the fountain pen, I began to scratch a note to Edna, but I had hardly begun when I was distracted by a movement in the room. I turned my head quickly in the direction of the sound. Then I laughed to myself. It was only the curtains, billowing and rustling gently in front of an open section of the window. Turning away, I began to write again. But the persistent feeling that I was not alone in the room made me turn around once more. This time, I looked more carefully, or maybe my eyes had become better adjusted to the gloom. I thought I saw something lying in a heap at the foot of a long couch. I bent down and squinted. It was Edna's mink coat. Just as I reached for it with my hand, something just beyond the arc of my vision caught my attention. It was another heap. Something else crumbled, like the coat on the floor. It was Edna. She was lying there, parallel with the couch, motionless. Fuck. Okay, so he was sitting there for how long? He was sitting there downstairs for some time. He was reading a magazine and he went upstairs to leave her note and she was dead. She was dead in the glass room. Dead in the glass room. I walked slowly around the couch and bent down very close to her. There was no sound, no movement, nothing. Then I felt my muscles go rigid. There was a pool of blood where her shoulder rested on the rug and a sharp black spot high on her chest, just below her throat. I almost cried because she was gone now and because in spite of everything she had done to me, in spite of all her bitchiness, I would never again see her walk across a room towards me and get the feeling that she alone had always given me. I would never again be able to curse her in my thoughts while watching her and remembering those other things about her that I'd never be able to forget. What the fuck is wrong with it? Yeah, <laughs> Phil. That's, that's Phil just my needs to go to therapy. Phil needs therapy really badly. Um, like he's sad that she's gone because he won't have this like foil to live against. Right. It's like it feels like Wiley e. Coyote is sad that the Roadrunner. Yeah. Has, like, moved states. Right. Yeah, (laughs) this is, like, every other Joker story is about, like, how Batman and Joker need each other. Yes. (laughs) And, yeah, I feel like that's what's happening here. But, like, it's weird, then, that he was so anxious to get the divorce in the first place, right? As we've said, it definitely seems that he is still carrying a torch for her. Yeah. Again, I I think therapy. I think he needs therapy in the glass room. (laughs) (laughs) Therapy. Therapy. So his first reaction to her death is me, me, me. (laughs) (laughs) I won't be able to see her be bitchy towards me again. She is dead. His first reaction is myself. (laughs) My feelings. Yeah, the lack of immediate concern for Edna. I'm trying to imagine what I would do in this situation, and it's immediately trying to figure out 
whether or not Edna's really dead or not, check her pulse. Get- yeah, he's no medical expert. He could at least like take a pulse. I mean, you know? it's the way she's described. It sounds like she was kind of cold, but still, right. like any kind of care yeah. any kind of like just even care theater just like pretending put his ear up to her mouth to hear if there's any breath you know like uh, these kinds of things small gestures to show <laughs> that you care whether another human being is alive or not uh so it makes it feel extra like disingenuous when he's like <laughs> acting like he's sad that she's dead only because he won't have a bitchy person to slap in restaurants anymore. (laughs) I went over to the phone on the end table next to the bed and dialed the police. My fingers toyed with a small, leather-covered, brand-new address book that was lying next to the phone as I'd heard the signal go. Once, twice, three times. Then I heard a voice say, Hollywood Station. Hello? Hello? I want to report a murder. I heard a click at the other end, and the voice said, Who is this calling? My mouth froze. I put the receiver down carefully and quietly and cursed myself for being so dumb. Alone with the body in the middle of the night, even if she was my wife, I knew cops. I'd had dealings with them many times. They would always put one and one together, maybe even two and two, and come to the obvious, wrong, pig-headed answer. What an idiotic trick. I had to get out of there, and fast. But first I took a last look at her body. The blood was drying almost black over the laceration. Then I saw something on the floor next to the couch, lying on the thick round blue rug. I stopped to pick it up and caught myself just in time. It was one of those old-fashioned cuticle cutters, a long murderous stem of shiny, silvery metal that ended in a sharp, minuscule, scythe-like curve with a sharp slicing edge. The whole length of the metal, which was set in a mother of pearl handle, was discolored with blood, and the blood showed reddish purple on the handle. I knew that cuticle cutter. It was part of a cheap set that I'd seen a hundred times if I'd seen it once. It had been strangely out of place in Edna's otherwise elegant trousseau. I'd wondered about it then, but I never got a straight answer from her. That's very funny. Wait, that what? That he was thinking about this cuticle cutter, like, a lot. Enough that he asked her about it multiple times because she he the implication, I never got a straight answer from her. So he was like, why do you have that cuticle cutter? What's like, up with that cuticle cutter that you have? Does he just, like, refuse to understand, like, nail grooming? As I understand, he was saying that this was, like, below her station, that this cuticle cutter was, like, out of place with her things it was like from a cheap set so he's like why why don't you have a fancy cuticle cutter and this is something that has like bothered him yeah (laughs) yeah it may as well be the thing bothering him like he's obsessed with objects he loves any object i straightened up and headed for the door but then i returned there was something i remembered there it was on the end table next to the phone the leather address book. It puzzled me. It had no right to be there. I knew Edna's habits perfectly. Couldn't help knowing them. She'd never owned an address book. She was like me in that respect. I always scrawled down names and addresses and phone numbers on odd pieces of paper and backs of old envelopes and leave them in my coat pocket. 
If the particular number I want isn't in the suit I'm wearing, I'm out of luck. I never write them down in any permanent form. Edna was like that too, except that the scraps all went into her purse and stayed there until she used them or forgot about them or chucked them out. Fuck, am I Edna? You are Edna. Are Edna and I like kindred spirits? Only in one respect. <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in this one aspect. I do have a lot of mink stoles. <laughs> oh, that is true. Okay, two aspects. I love wearing fur in Los Angeles where it is currently 90 degrees. LA fur, baby. That's the lie. Sweat it off. Sweat off your life. Sweat it all out. Sweat it out. I slipped the little address book into my pocket. I went out the door of the glass room, leaving it open, and ran down the steps. In a few seconds, I was in my car, driving further out, away from the city, giving her all the gas she could take. As the car sped through the canyon, I heard the police car sirens in the distance behind me. I drove fast for over an hour, turning off and onto roads without any reason I could explain to myself. All I knew was that I wanted to get as far away from the house as I could. While I drove, I tried to drown out the picture of her face, but it wouldn't stay drowned. I kept seeing it in front of me. I had to think things out. I had to get them straight in my own mind. Too much had happened. The clock on the dashboard said 3.58. 12 hours ago, I had been a happy man, plenty of dough, plenty of friends, a thriving business, and only one headache in the whole wide world. And now look at me. Boy, I disagree with that characterization, Phil. That is an extreme <laughs> exaggeration of how we started this book. <laughs> let's see. Let's run this down as a checklist and see how many of these things, Amanda, you agree with, knowing what you know about Phil. All right, let's go. <laughs> 12 hours ago, was Phil a happy man? Oh, definitely not. He leaves every place he enters worse <laughs> than when he started, <laughs> and he never starts good. <laughs> uh, 12 hours ago, did he have plenty of dough? Not really, kind of. I mean, only, I mean, he had the dough on his person, but it was earmarked for someone else. Right. He was giving it to his wife. So. He had plenty of dough technically. He was a mule for it. So right. I mean, whatever. It's it's a technically true. If we were doing like a politifact, this would be like a mostly true. <laughs> right. Yeah. 12 hours ago, did Phil Norris have plenty of friends? We just left a scene where he describes how any contacts he has are written down and immediately lost and thrown away. This yeah. doesn't sound like someone who values friendship. <laughs> Absolutely not. Murdoch, I guess, is like the one person you could describe as a friend. Um, he has a cloud of frenemies. Right. It's all like business associates. They're like. All, yeah, he's financially, the way he keeps people in his life is by financially entangling with them. Right. <laughs> and only one headache in the whole wide world. I mean, I guess maybe if he's pinning all of his problems on Edna, yes, but also, no, this is somebody with a lot of problems. He is constantly listing the problems <laughs> right? that he has in the moment <laughs> and in the past. Yeah. I just had to think things out. Pretty soon I realized if I had kept driving much further in the same direction, I'd hit the oceanfront above Santa Monica. There was nothing else for me to do but head home. The night elevator boy was the only one awake in the lobby 
He took me up to the seventh floor and wished me a sleepy good night. Inside the apartment, I sat down and tried to get everything clear in my own head. It was a job. My thoughts just wouldn't stay collected. One thing I knew, I had to be sure that the killer was found, not only because he had killed her, but because sooner or later, suspicion would begin working in my direction. My fingerprints were probably all over the house, on the telephone, on the glass and whiskey bottle, and God knows where else in the living room. Why hadn't I remembered to wipe it clean? Well, at least Phil recognizes his incompetence. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's... <laughs> well, listen, he's not a criminal. He's a bookie, you know. He's not a murderer. So, yeah, it's, I, he's panicked. He saw his ex-wife. I, I'm too being too hard on Phil. No, no. I mean, like, he's crime. He's murder adjacent. He like right. he lives in the racket universe, so like <laughs> he like I feel like he should have a little bit more savvy, but I also understand why he would just completely lose his shit and not do anything correctly the second he sees Edna, nonetheless seeing her dead. Yeah, but it is funny to realize how many things he got wrong in this moment. He is like, wrong about everything. That is so true. <laughs> I started to get panicky. There I was, just sitting around doing nothing, waiting like a ripe tomato to be picked. My hand shook as I poured myself a drink, but the neat whiskey calmed me down. I didn't know where to begin. You just didn't look in a city directory, pick out a name and say, here's your killer. <laughs> You've gotta have a system, at least a starting point. But what and where? After staring blankly at the wall for a few minutes, I realized I hadn't the remotest idea. I guess I'm imagining that like Homer Simpson face yes. where it's like the two pupils are like slightly misaligned. And they're just, just blink, blink. blink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I, he went into like some kind of rage stupor. Right, staring at a wall. Yeah, he's just catatonic. <laughs> at least he didn't punch the wall. Yeah, That's, that maybe I'll give. I Phil guess he has enough sense to not punch the hotel walls yeah. <laughs> that he would probably have to pay for. I must be a peculiar character, I thought. In a country where any kid who reads comic books was an expert, intuitive Hawkshaw or Dick Tracy, I was the sole incompetent exception. In a country where three quarters of the literate adult population maintained the double pre-slumber ritual of sleeping pills, followed by a sleep-defeating whodunit yarn, and got to be so familiar with the process of the detective mind that they solved murders even in their dreams. I was a silly character who never knew which trail to follow. Wait, what? He is saying that everyone in America is an amateur detective because children read Dick Tracy comics and uh, adults read whodunits. Therefore, Every one of them is like an expert detective except for Phil Norris. Yes, it's the world against Phil Norris, yeah. as usual. The whodunit racket. Yeah. I do like that this book has like turned on itself. It has. He's like, oh, all these assholes, all these basic bitches out there reading, <laughs> reading whodunit books. <laughs> what a bunch of rubes. We're going to take a quick break. We're back. 
Nevertheless, I realized I couldn't sit around and wait for inspiration to come to me, nor could I wait long enough to work out a surefire plan. I had to do something. But what? Oh, man. <laughs> I had to do something, but what? But who? How? I don't Where? Know. I don't know. Uh, I, I want him to just ask somebody for help, but I don't know who. <laughs> uh, he, again, is like, I don't, like, if he doesn't have, like, a knee-jerk reaction to something, then he's completely lost. Mm -hmm. All I could think of was to start with the obvious. That, of course, was to check on Edna's friends and acquaintances, one by one, and get them to talk. First on the list was the walking skeleton, Stanley, the guy who had slapped her. Anyone who would hit her like that, I thought, wouldn't have far to go to stick a knife into her. And then I hesitated. That was just what the police would think about my smacking her. But I knew why I had done it. I didn't know about Stanley. <laughs> so this is pretty great. Yeah. He's like, anybody who would slap her would murder her. But wait, <laughs> I didn't murder her, but I slapped her. <laughs> yeah, like he is slowly figuring out that he is not a good guy either. Right. In this, but like he's having a hard time distinguishing himself from whoever the real murderer is. And that's telling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like basically we're the same, but maybe he's evil. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'm just misguided. Right. <laughs> So, Stanley was first on the list. After that, I didn't know. Then I remembered the little black book. I took it out of my pocket and opened it at random. Immediately, I saw that it made more sense now because it wasn't an address book. It was one of those little date books with each page devoted to a different day of the week and date of the year. I flipped the pages forward until I came to May 21st. There was only one notation on the page, CR1234, my own number. That was yesterday, when she'd phoned to invite me over to her little shakedown party. It wasn't a party for her intended to shake him down. It's just like how he imagines it in his mind. It's yeah, like, yeah, especially in hindsight. There's no way. all these people over to watch the public shakedown of me, Phil Norris where she invited all her friends to laugh at me one by one, <laughs> telling them what a bad husband I was and having them all string me up like a pinata and, <laughs> and take turns whacking at me from the ceiling until money fell out of my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Under May 22nd, there was nothing but a small penciled letter. It might have been L or G or S, but I couldn't be sure. I didn't concentrate on that very long anyway, because the adjacent page, the one for May 23rd, was filled with scrawled notes, this time in ink. I read them over and over. Okay, so at this point, there's like a list of Edna's appointments. Sure. It would be really boring for me to read them verbatim. Um, I'm just going to kind of summarize Okay, great. What Phil finds in here. Yeah, spare us the tedium. The first line is like a, a HO1168, so it's like a nonsense. That's at 10 a.m. Then it says- <laughs> Sounds great. That's nonsense at 10. <laughs> then uh, Stanley, office at 11. Okay, so we know we've met Professor Stanley. Yes. Okay. Then uh, Edna was to have lunch at the St. Regis. Uh, then- uh, Edna was going to meet 
P, then uh, of someone named Muriel, and then uh, Edna was going to the Shea Adele okay. in the evening. So that is Edna's schedule. I could just picture Edna chasing around town, going from appointment to appointment, a little breathless, a little late. And at the end of the day, looking just as fresh and as pearly as when she started out. I could see her hailing taxis, talking to people in that velvety way of hers, and sipping a demitasse and leaving the fresh imprint of her lipstick on the edge of the cup. I could see her fidgeting through a fitting at Shea Adele, looking a little frightened behind her smile and talking with Stanley. And like a kid, letting her favorite dessert, raspberry ice, melt slowly on her tongue to prolong the flavor at the St. Regis. I could see her alive that day. I wanted her to be alive that day, to do all these things. That description of her eating raspberry ice, like, kind of intense. Yeah, he loves her, or at least is obsessed with, like, her manner and confidence. Right. And it drives him extra crazy, so he's like, a hundred million times more insecure around her. Maybe also, like, you know the way he, like, fetishizes objects, like, rich objects? Yes. Like, maybe that's how he sees Edna as, like... His connection to the high life. Right. And the fact that she was so awful to him is, like, the high life saying to him, you are not worthy yes, of us. Yes, that's a thousand percent the class strife that's going on in this marriage. Yeah. Totally. Oh, boy. I think we cracked it. Then it came to me, not only in my mind, but also in my guts. I had to do, on May 23rd, what Edna would have done if she'd been alive. I had to live out the day the way Edna would have lived it. I felt better now that I had worked out a plan, but I thought I might need help. So I called Jerry's number. There was no answer. It was just 615. HO1168 was scheduled for 10. I poured myself a drink and sat down to wait. What do we think of this plan? How uh, are we on this plan? He had to do this. He had to live out Edna's next day. To be fair, Phil is like, I am not a detective guy. I don't know anything about solving crimes or murders. Right, like he's so upfront about not knowing how to do this uh, right. and has like caught himself in a bunch of like, a bunch of situations where he could basically be framed for this murder uh, very easily and right. continues, he yeah. continues to do this and now he wants to be her. <laughs> I feel like next he's gonna like, he's gonna put on that mink coat. Yes. He's gonna put on the same exact shade of red lipstick yeah, that she is, wore. This is like obsession to another level. Uh, yeah, this is this is great. This is, this is gonna work. Um, what do we think about him going to Jerry of all people for help. This is a like guy the... who earlier today he was like, "We are no longer friends. You are the worst person I know for cheating me in my bookie business, uh, and your fake friendship. I spit on it. I spit on your <laughs> fake friendship." Now he's like, 
the police suspect me of murdering my wife. Better go to Jerry. I have a feeling Jerry's just going to help for yeah, some Yeah, Jerry's reason. just going to. Well, because all of the stuff about where Phil is like, Jerry's the worst, was in his inner monologue. So I don't think he told off Jerry. Mm. He was just thinking about how much he hated Jerry. That's a good point. So, yeah, Jerry will probably just be like, oh, yeah, sure, buddy. Like, yeah, let me help you solve a murder. <laughs> Why not? What else do I have to do today? Um, well, bad news for Phil. The heat turns up in the next chapter because a cop visits him at his house. Oh, snap. Okay. A very real cop visits him in his very real, very lovely, tastefully furnished <laughs> apartment. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so tune in next time for another exciting chapter from Murder in the Glass Room. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs>